You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, April 20th, 2011, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. Evan Bernstein. Buona sera, everyone. And we have a special guest rogue this week, Izzy Lawrence. Izzy, welcome to the Skeptic's Guide. Thank you very much, and hello. 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 <laughs> Izzy is a stand-up comedian, a writer, an artist, and you somehow managed to get Izzy.com. I'm, I'm impressed by that. I bought that when I was like 10 years old. Is that right? You must have. I, I had a little dance when I did. It was brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't know what I wanted to be or anything. I thought, Izzy, brilliant, got that. But it's spelt weird. It's I-S-Z-I, because I'm nerdy. And I thought, actually, if you get a mirror on the word is, it spells my name. Huh, brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> um, and th- there are many reasons why we wanted to have you on our show. But the reason why we're having you on this week is because, as astute listeners may have noticed, you have done the new intro and outro to The Skeptic's Guide. Yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be very weird actually hearing my voice because I'm li- listen to your podcast very regularly and actually to hear me just going hello. I don't know which one you went with as well because I did like a posh one because Jay the good one posh. Jay got me to do posh a very spice. sexy one. So I don't know if that's the one where I'm going. Oh hello, welcome to the Skeptic's Guide. <laughs> oh, it's that one for his I, personal use. That's, that's probably I, yeah. yeah. That, that wasn't for the show. What are you talking about? <laughs> we got a ton of email about why we changed the intro voice. And the only thing I'm going to say about that is that the original intro voice was done by Jay's ex-wife. And that should be enough to explain to you why we had to get her voice off the, off the show. And uh, we had so many complaints about the fake British accent that replaced her that we had to get... I'd like to point out that I had nothing to do with yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. That I, was an authentic fake British accent, folks. Come on. I was a professional overpaid actress. But <laughs> what, uh, we decided we wanted to get an authentic, a real British accent. So It sounded fine to me. I mean, it said, yeah, there's, there's the accent. But people that live it, live with that accent every day, it was jarring for some reason for them. It was just a it little bit awful. unsettling, because some something that was beyond was us. Yeah, <laughs> what, what could the reason have been? Let's think Imagine if I spelt like this the entire time. You're Imagine. from Tennessee. Sounds yeah. Cool. <laughs> Bad accents, they're always, yes. Uh, it wasn't It wasn't so much, it was kind of cute, because it was kind of, you're like, oh, she's obviously American, and she was, she'd was. she say things like, today would say very well in very clipped, old-fashioned English, and then she'd suddenly say, fiction, and it would all go American. <laughs> it's bizarre. <laughs> <laughs> if you learn to speak properly, there wouldn't be a problem. I mean, really. And so what we just heard was Izzy doing an impression of an American, doing a bad impression of an English person. Doing our intro, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's talent. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. But Izzy, we had a good time. Come on, it was worth the hour of time. It was brilliant, you shouting at me, going, No! A bigger pause now! Get it right! Get it right! (laughs) (laughs) You You could hear a whip in the background if you listen really carefully. Yeah, he burned his way through a few Brits before he got to you. I I insisted that he spend no more than an hour with Izzy because I did not want her burned out. And also, you know, the sort of you didn't want me overtaking you, Rebecca, in the whole sort of like frisson between you and Jay, the sort of slight ooh. Sort of like ooh frisson. Because we we don't we. I, I think it. I think it definitely does. Sexual yes. tension. Oh, so, yeah, it yeah the sexual tension. 
fiction. Oh, yeah. What are you really? It's really? why we listen. We don't care about science, the listeners. We just want to hey. hear. Hey! Well, the good news is that I've learned a lot from U.S. sitcoms, and what I've learned is that the two leads with the sexual tension can never get together, mm-hmm. or else it ruins everything. So Look at True Blood. I won't because I'm not a 14 year old girl. But <laughs> wait, 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 wait a second. True Blood. We're not Twi- talking Twilight. 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 True Blood. True Blood is Twilight for people oh, who are M-F-G. just satisfying their inner 14 year old girl. Oh it's, my it's, god! It's wow, Twilight Bob. with sex. That's a shot across the bow. But what that really oh means that it's time to move on to some actual science discussion because we're we're done with the whole vampire thing. So, Evan, let's go back to you, and you're going to tell us what's special about today. April 23rd, 2009, so only two years ago, Gamma Ray Burst GRB 090423 is observed for 10 seconds. This event signaled, at the time, the most distant object of any kind in the known universe. And also the most ancient. The most, (laughs) at the same time. Yeah, and those two things are related. (laughs) They, they, They definitely are. A... Redshift of Z equal Z. It's Z. A redshift, thank you, of Z 8.2 was the measurement. Uh, oh only boy. outdone by a galaxy they discovered in 2010 with a redshift of 8.3. Mm-hmm. But still, it's the oldest, most, uh, most ancient GRB ever detected. And it was detected by the Swift uh, Array. The Swift but telescope. wait, but also, isn't the other piece of that is that it was actually the most... The most energetic, and that that follows as well, the most energetic gamma ray burst. And we actually have no idea what process could have created it, which is really interesting. I couldn't find, yeah, a specific explanation, and I think it's still not known. It's a mystery. It's a big mystery. It's hailed by astronomers as a watershed event that marked the beginning of the study of the universe as it was before most of the structure that is known about the universe came into being. So it was quite an event at the time. Still being studied. Yeah, well, it was just two years ago. Uh, have you guys heard about the Hotel, H-O-T-T-E-L document? Well, to back up a yes. little bit, the, F- yes. the FBI created a website that they're calling The Vault. And what this is is uh, documents that have been released through Fe- Freedom of Information Acts. Since it's been released into the public domain, they're just putting these documents up on a website database, you can go to the you can go to the FBI vault and you can just you know search thousands of documents. I'm not sure how many they have there now, but they're putting up more all the time. And this has led to UFO enthusiasts going through these documents and you know dredging up new bits of information that they say support their their UFO conspiracy theories. And we've actually seen just in the last couple of weeks two different news items related to this, the FBI vault. The first one is um, the Guy Hotel document, and this is a memo that was sent from the head of the Washington office for the FBI uh, up the chain to uh, the director of the FBI at the time. I'll read you the entire text of the document. The following information was furnished to SA, redacted, so the name was redacted, by redacted. An investigator for the Air Forces stated that three so-called flying saucers had been recovered in New Mexico. They were described as being circular in shape with raised centers approximately 50 feet in diameter. Each one was occupied by three bodies of human shape but only three feet tall, dressed in metallic cloth of a very fine texture. 
Each body was bandaged in a manner similar to the blackout suits used by speed flyers and test pilots. No further evaluation was attempted by SA Redacted concerning the above. That was the entire memo. Uh, this was dated March 22nd, 1950. So not long after the whole um, Roswell. Roswell incident, and which was three years earlier, 1947, which was also the same year of the Kenneth Arnold sighting that, kind of, that is credited with sparking the modern flying saucer uh, fascination. So now, so this document's making the rounds on UFO sites as, you know, smoking gun evidence that of a government cover-up of recovering alien bodies at the, around that time. Even though this actually is not referring to Roswell uh, specifically, this, this event occurred later. There's a couple of ways you could look at this. You know, we always look at things based upon plausibility and then what has actual investigation revealed about the evidence of this. The, the plausibility of this is, so you have to, first of all, understand this is at least secondhand information that's coming to, you know, the office in Washington is being passed up the chain routinely. And the, uh, the agent said that, you know, no further evaluation was attempted, although I've, um, you know, I've read since you know, writing about this last week that the, their policy was not to investigate UFOs. So the, they only got involved to enough enough depth to see if there was any criminal activity because that's what that was that's their purview. So if there was no indication that there was any criminal activity going on, then they would not do any further investigation. I think there might be some evidence of drug taking or similar hallucination in some of the reports. <laughs> <laughs> well, interestingly, this did result from criminal activity. That, that when uh, people invest, you know, tried to follow back the chain of where this information was coming from, it, went, it passed through about five different people, and it leads back to a couple of con artists who were using this report of, of having recovered, that the government had recovered al- these crashed flying saucers and alien bodies to sell what they were claiming was alien technology. And this, that the rumor that they created in order to to do their con found its way to this FBI agent, who then just dutifully reported it, and then but then nothing further was done. So this is a sixty-year-old hoax, or actual evidence of alien invasion. Yeah, three feet tall aliens apparently failed alien invasion, human-shaped bodies. Yeah, it sounds like is it the Sontarans from Doctor Who that are a bit like that? Sontarans. Is that right? Well, it, it, it is. It is kind of quaint when you think about it. I mean, metallic fabric. I mean, isn't that like right out of science fiction movies from the time? Well, yeah. I mean, if you look at the the way that UFO and alien reports have mutated, evolved over the years, they all adhere exactly to what was popular in sci-fi at the time, whether it was through television or movies or books, comic yeah. books. Mm-hmm. If it was in the 70s, they'd be wearing, like, a neon jumpsuits and uh, leg warmers in the 80s. <laughs> well, yeah, they went from, like, little green aliens to the, the grays, you know, which are more popular now. So, Steve, what does this all mean? Again, the, you know, hearsay is still hearsay, even if it gets written down by an FBI agent in an official memo. How much does a bit of alien technology set you back? I mean, in real money, not dollars, but... Yeah, <laughs> in pounds. Yeah, in pounds. Uh, what was what, what? What alien technology were they selling? Was it 
indicator lights? No, they were selling they were selling metallic like fabric. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine how disappointed you'd be like if you're the owner of this really awesome company that has a ton of money and you you know you spend, you drop a few million down on an alien ray gun and you open it up and it's like it doesn't work or it's like a Star Trek phaser like they bought from yeah. Walmart or something. <laughs> well, yeah, and I mean it happened pretty recently with that guy the guys who who sold the bigfoot costume oh, as yeah. an actual bigfoot yeah that was great it's just yeah some bits of raccoon and costume. A costume very quickly the other news item it relates to a JFK document and here this result this refers also to the MJ12 you guys familiar with the majestic 12 documents yeah this is yeah, yeah oh, yes. an alleged i'm not yeah so it's you know the MJ12 was alleged to be a secret government project that was covering up and looking into the whole UFO thing back in the 1950s, 1960s. And, uh, but the, the documents that, you know, the, the famous now uh, MJ-12 documents allegedly signed by Harry Truman emerged out of nowhere, right? So they were appa- apparently, the story goes, they were just mysteriously left for a UFO investigator in a manila envelope by somebody that was never identified. So they just, Deep throat. Yeah, they just appear out of nowhere. Mm. Uh, and they haven't really stood up to, to scrutiny, but the the, doc, you know, the documents that again that are making the making the rounds, or indicate only that uh, JFK, you know, had taken some interest in the um, inform, information about UFOs. So you know, just the the notion that, and also there was the suggestion that information was being kept from the president. So, like, there were other agencies in the government that were keeping information from the president. Like Independence Day. Yeah, right. I don't think it's implausible that the president had a, a, a legitimate interest in UFOs. The well, yeah, that's... what was occurring at the they're time. They're trying to say that because the president was interested in UFOs, there must be something to it. But, remember, this was the height of the Cold War. And what the interest was, was, you know, Kennedy was concerned mm. that the Soviet Union would interpret UFO reports as, as American aggression yeah. and that that would yeah. – tr- yeah, exactly. That would trigger some kind of response from them. Well, what about the idea though that, Steve, that perhaps um, some, some potential um, alien reports were in fact something that the Ruskies were doing, you know, that, that, he, that we would want to know about? I mean, right? Isn't that well, another, yeah, that's another the, way to look at yeah, it? Yeah, so UFO reports might have been of Russian activity – um, in fact, the the U.S. government allowed uh, rumors of, of flying saucers to spread because it covered up stuff that we were doing. So if like, yeah. we were flying a secret plane and people re- reported the flying saucer, they would just let that rumor go. Because, they must have loved it. Yeah, it, yeah. it was automatic cover you know, for, for what they were doing. So that, that's what all the interest within the government, you know, the legitimate interest at the time was – uh, was referring to was you know basically the Cold War with the Soviet Union, covering up our activity, interested in what they were doing, and and, and ho- also hoping that it wasn't going to inadvertently lead to a misinterpretation of aggression on one side or the other. But these UFO nutters say, oh, this is evidence that the president understood that there is alien activity going on and trying to cover it up, and he was assassinated ten days after. Yeah, so they try to these, they try to link it to the assassination. Yeah, that he was killed because he was going to investigate the UFO thing. Yeah, I'm sure he did a lot of things in the ten days yeah. leading up to his assassination, <laughs> none of which had anything to do with the assassination. Right. So I expect more of these now that the FBI vault, you know, is online. 
it makes it easy to go searching through all these documents. See, I'm a huge uh, fan of conspiracy theories because that's how I got started in skepticism. Because I watched like an idiot, um, nine, you know, the nine eleven truth stuff, yeah. films, and all that sort of thing, and I, it got me for about a month, and then it was just like. Oh, <laughs> when you just do a tiny bit of oh. you're like, oh, <laughs> I'm an idiot. No, why, can't, why can't more people? Why can't more people just do that and just say, oh? They just never get to that point. They just don't yeah, say, oh. It takes a lot of guts to be able to realize that you're wrong and admit that you're wrong, even just admitting it to yourself. Especially if you have some sort of deep. You know, heartfelt feelings for the subject in one way or the other. Also, I think that like conspiracy theories are kind of reassuring in a way because it's much more reassuring to believe that yeah, there is a government cover up here than it is that these weird things that we can't identify are in the sky or we've seen something we can't explain or indeed that anybody could you know go out and kill a bunch of people for no particular reason that we we're aware of until it happens. And that's much more scary, whereas putting a huge big story where it takes a lot of people and you get an enemy, that's quite, you know. I agree, yeah, that's a part of the psychology of the the grand conspiracy theories. But but the problem with them, of course, intellectually, is that they're designed to be insulated from disconfirmation. Once you believe in the conspiracy, there's no way to prove that it's not going on, because any evidence against the conspiracy is part of the conspiracy, and... Any evidence that's missing is being covered up, so you're locked and you're locked into the belief system. Yeah, Stephen, but that's what they told me you'd say. So <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I mean, seriously, that's what people do. You joke, but that's they even try to inoculate you sometimes against people who will try to disabuse you of your belief. Uh, Bob, tell us about a new method for finding exoplanets because we don't have enough methods yet for finding these things. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, if you know if you follow astronomy news at all, it's, it's hard to miss uh, a lot of these news items about the exoplanet discoveries. The past ten or fifteen years, it, it just ex- exploded the um, the amount of planets that we found. So you know, as these methods that we have, Steve, like Steve mentioned, the methods that we have to detect them have they become more and more refined, and and new tools come online, like the Kepler Space Telescope, which is which is really causing a huge uh, influx of uh, new potential candidates. But now there's another technique, and it's not and, – and Steve, yeah, you make it kind of sound like, oh, you know, how many do we need? But this one is, is kind of special. Uh, it's no, new, I think we need to... more methods actually because the ones we have are, are sort of limited in, in what – Well, yeah, exactly. Say, this yeah. Is just, and this is exactly what this new one address, addresses. Uh, this one uses the emission of uh, radio auroras from uh, gas giants – that our radio telescopes can can actually detect, and the key advantage is that it, it may allow for uh, for us to detect these Jupiter-sized Jovian objects, Jovian planets that are billions of miles from the star that that they're orbiting. Now, current methods have little hope um, of, of of doing doing that as as easily as this one, this new technique does. And Dr. Jonathan Nichols and colleagues at the University of Leicester uh, recently presented. <laughs> what? <laughs> Leicester. Oh, please. He, oh, said, he said Leicester. Leicester, please. It says Leicester. How do you spell Leicester? <laughs> yeah, Bob, okay. wow. You picked the perfect show to talk about <laughs> this news story. That's How's it feel, well, Bob? <laughs> Einstein. Well, I, 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 think, I think these people don't know how to spell, but I'll pronounce it the appropriate way. Sure. <laughs> tell me, tell me where you think the National Astronomy Meeting is actually being held. I want you to pronounce that place in Wales. Oh yeah, that, I was I was really Wales. anticipating this one. Um, Landudno, I would have said. <laughs> Landudno, no, Flandudno. Landudno. Just made that up. It's, double L is a C H in Welsh. 
And Interesting. Got the, that uh, the irony of meeting that, I've, I've gigged a couple of times in Trinidad though, and it's every single time you go, it's pouring with rain. Oh. It's, there's no cloudier, wetter place in the country than there. And okay. the idea that, you know, astronomy with, oh, perfect, see some skies. <laughs> no. <laughs> I can't even understand what you're saying when you let dead know. Trinidad, no. That's and I'm not even doing it right because I'm not doing a proper Welsh accent. Do a bit Welsh. That means it's almost, almost Elvish. Sounds Italian. It is. It is. <laughs> Seriously, Tolkien was ripping off a bit of, um, you know, Welsh. Is that right? Is yeah, Elvish stuff. Yeah. What a bloke. Exactly. Sorry. Okay. So Leicester, Bob. These guys were in Leicester. Okay. Leicester. Okay. Yeah, at the University of Leicester, they recently presented their results at the Royal Astronomical Society National Astronomy Meeting in Wales. Now he said, he said this is the uh, <laughs> this is the first study to predict the radio emissions by exoplanetary systems similar to those we find at Jupiter or Saturn. At both of these planets, we see radio waves associated with auroras generated by interactions with ionized gas coming from volcanic moons. Now our study shows that we could detect emissions from radio auroras from Jupiter-like systems orbiting at distances as far out as Pluto. And that, that's the key thing. Um, the emissions then are generated by fast-moving electrons from the moons that are coming from the moons that are spiraling along the gas giant's magnetic field line. So, But instead of generating visible light, like you would see with the aurora borealis or australis, planets can also generate these auroras that are lower energy radio light and that we can detect with radio telescopes from great distances, apparently. So now the two... I think we should just quickly mention the two most widely used techniques to detect these planets. And we've mentioned them before. You've got the transit method uh, where the planet occludes a star and you can kind of see the dip in, in, uh, in radiation coming from the sun. And there's the wobble method, which basically detects the gravitational tug of war between the planet and the star that are detectable. Now, if you use these techniques for, say, to find Jupiter or Saturn-sized um, planet at the distances that they are, um, you'd have to be either be very, very lucky or have to wait a long time since their orbits are like 12 years and 30 years, I think, respectively. But the, the, the chance that, that they will occlude and the amount that they will occlude will be less. So the, the, the transit method and the tugging method both favor larger planets closer to their parent star. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, the closer you are, the better it is with those techniques. And that's why less than 10% of all the exoplanets ever found are, are actually at distances comparable to our outer planets. Very, you know, very, very small percentage. Um, and I guess they, you know, either, like I said, they, either they got lucky with these or they watched, they watched them for a long time. So, so this is the, this is the gap that this new technique is, is filling, is filling here. So it's kind of like the old story of the drunk looking for, for his keys under a streetlight. And he's doing that because what that's the only place he'd be able to see them, right? Well, this new these radio auroras are kind of like another streetlight that turned on down the road. Like, oh, here's another way, you know, we could look and find these um, these other planets. But they said it's only good to out to about 150 light years. Yeah, that's true. Which is which is kind of a so that that's a big limitation. I I mean, there's still there's a lot of stars that close, but still, that's that's a limitation. Yeah, that's true. Cool, but they haven't actually found any planets using this method yet. No, I mean they're just releasing this information. I think, um, but just yeah, recently. So yeah, you're saying it's pl- it's plausible. So now they have to actually start using it to see. It, what, that, yeah, but what a great idea, though. Yeah. Using uh, these radio waves. I mean, we've got you know our radio telescopes are incredible, especially some of the new ones coming out. I think the new one coming out this later this year is LOFAR, um, really really advanced, and they they specifically mentioned that that one uh, that we'll be able to detect this stuff. So yeah. maybe later this year we'll we'll start 
we'll start detecting some of this stuff. And it seems pretty likely that the, the Jovians would have moons that were producing like an ionosphere. They were putting out ions of, in one way or another. Since bold- well, yeah, the tidal, the tidal forces, you yeah. know, you've got to create some sort of volcanism, right? And a lot of these, these emissions are coming from these, uh, these volcanoes on these moons. Yeah, or geysers so, yeah. like with... Um, right, yeah. They discovered that between Enceladus and Saturn, there is not only like an ionosphere, but uh, there's these like beams of electrons going back and forth between the planet and the moon. Uh, Sharing electrons. Because, really? of the, because, of the, because it's within the, magnetic, the magnetosphere of Saturn, and it's spewing out all these oh. ions, and that is creating these like belts of electrons between the, the moon and, the, and Saturn. So if you went on there and you didn't, for whatever reason, wear a space helmet, would your hair stand on end? Is it that static? Uh, that or would be the least of your worries. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> uh, Jay, tell us what's going to happen to all the space shuttles that we're about to retire. So the shuttle program is ending this year, sadly. We, uh, we have two missions left. Right, guys? I know that uh, we have yeah. one coming up next week, and then we Endeavor. have one, yep, yep. And one in June, right? So this means that NASA is going to be relying on outside sources for the space transport. So NASA selected four companies that they uh, recently talked about that they are giving $270 million each of seed money to, hoping that these companies will uh, finish developing technologies that they've already started working on. So the four companies are Blue Origin, Boeing, Sierra Nevada Corp., and SpaceX. And NASA also said that they hope that by 2015, one or more of these companies is going to have an active program that can be used. So they're basically spreading the money out, hoping that one of them will hit in the time frame that works for them. But Meanwhile, the only way to get astronauts to and from this, the space station is, is to hitch a ride with the Soviets, with, with the Russians. Russians. The Soviets. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> showing my first, first age. Yeah, time okay. machine. Yeah. <laughs> Well, they're probably still using Soviet rockets. They are. Yeah, they haven't updated so those, any of their uh, those rockets. USSR hey, people. Hey, they've got a program. You guys don't. So. That's right. It's based on Chernobyl technology, people. <laughs> they top right there. We still do for another few months. Well, it's really costly, guys. The uh, the problem with using Russian spacecraft is that they're, the Russian space program is continually increasing the cost of these flights. And, you know, with their price gouging. Yeah, they. I think they are to a certain degree, and I also think that you know they're probably adding in missions to to accommodate, and you know they 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 definitely are making money off of it. And I think it's much better to give that money to to other companies to help develop this technology. So the thing is, though, moving to commercially manned spaceflight was inevitable, right? I mean, it had to happen at some point. I'm surprised it actually took this long. But it does close the chapter of one of my favorite childhood geekasms, right, guys? Growing up with, you know, we weren't even like at the right age when the initial space program hit. Like, and I'm not talking about the moon mission. I'm talking about just, uh, yeah, the Mercury, the Mercury missions. You know, there was an era where kids were enthralled with the space program around the world. You know, and I I would think I caught the tail end of that, but it still was awesome. It was still one of the best. We were. Coming into you know consciousness around the time of the Apollo space mission, yeah, you were still you know you Maybe were you a little were. bit younger, but you know, well, yeah, Bob and I were <laughs> old. We were old. We were old enough to appreciate the Apollo space program. Yeah, Izzy oh, and I were. Yeah, born. they were basically all that happened is they just showed them exploding, and then yeah. they did stories about astronauts in their nappies going mad. I mean. <laughs> 
Yeah, that's that pretty much describes the eighties that- child experience. <laughs> the space program you yeah. won't live to see your fourth birthday and then oh no it's gone it's fine but Happy birthday. what i want to, oh, just picking up on a point here right you're complaining about giving your money to the russians what makes you think that a commercial company which is in it for profit isn't going to hike up the price as well we can sue them if they're out of america <laughs> we well, can I, get our money back Casey, i thought of that get the same russian thing money about- back because law I, courts, they're cheap. <laughs> I couldn't confirm this idea, but I, I would imagine that if we're giving away that much money, that we're going to have some type of deal with each of these four companies. And keep in mind, these four companies are not the only companies developing components. They just happen to have major components that would that are absolutely critical to making this happen in a time. Well, even if if you read the specifics on any of the individual companies, they're using uh, components from other companies and even uh, using components from the Russians. So this is these are this is an international effort, even if it's an American company that's getting the contract. Well, yeah, and I think that what the way we benefit is just through. Encouraging competition. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. That'll so drive the price down. Yes. Space travel That's will never hope. be cheaper than when it goes commercial. I mean, yeah. when regular people are paying to take a you know a flight into outer space, or so when people are going to be paying for space flights into low Earth orbit. That's going to cheapen over over the years. It's going to it's going to make it much much less expensive. So it's going to be routine. It's literally going to be like a plane taking off eventually. Eventually, yeah. I mean, you're going to have to like have NASA still there though, giving the money to separate companies so you generate that competition. Otherwise, you're just going to have a monopoly on it, and the price will be through the roof. Surely. Yeah, yeah I, I don't I don't disagree with that, and I think they're very wisely spreading out the money and kind of balancing things out and not not relying on one company that we're you know, it's like the old uh, thing in the United States where a, a town or a, a city will hire one company to like build a bridge or pave roads or whatever. And what ends up happening is it takes five years longer and ten times the cost. So I think they are spreading it out, and I think they're they're setting the expectations high and giving them tight calendars. So that, you know, they they make the technology, they get there, and then it'll really it'll really take off once the government starts using them and paying them on a on like a you know monthly basis to send out ships. So it's a great great program. I like what yeah. they're doing. Yeah, it's, I mean, I was of course disappointed when when Obama canceled the Orion you know spacecraft that what was supposed to take over for the shuttle, uh, and he said, "Oh, we're going to you know do this private program." Uh, but you know, I'm still hopeful that this is going to work out. You know, th- these are some of these companies, like Boeing, is one of the companies. This obviously is a proven company that's long established. The Blue Origin was um, uh, founded by Jeff Bezos. I think that's how you pronounce his last name, B-E-Z-O-S. He's the founder of Amazon, and also uh, SpaceX, which has been getting a lot of press recently. They've had a successful launch of their Falcon rocket. Uh, the, uh, looking at the picture, the best design, or the one that looks looks the sexiest, is the uh, <laughs> the Dream Chaser. Do you guys oh. see this one? Yeah, it's from really Sierra cool. Nevada. Yep. It looks like a scaled down shuttle. Oh yeah, that yeah. was very cool looking. And they, it, this would be launched vertically at the tip of a rocket, probably not mounted like the like the space shuttle. Uh, but then could land at any any like international sized airport. They, they said wouldn't really even need a special airport. Uh, limited cargo. It would have enough to say resupply the space station. I don't. Doesn't look like the kind of thing that would be like hauling satellites into orbit. Or, uh, or, but but then again, we don't really need the shuttle to do that, right? We need something to get people and supplies up into the space station. Yeah, space I think elevator. 
Steve, yeah, they'll, they'll split up those missions. They'll split up the the, the manned missions and the unmanned yeah. missions. And I and the, uh, I think the leading companies that are actually sending that are sending capsules into space. We're talking about using the Atlas V, which yeah. pretty much has already you know been tested, and we can count on it. Well, yeah, that's true. But from what I'm reading, the Atlas V is not rated for humans. You know, it's one thing to have a rocket that's rated to put a satellite on top of it. But if you're going to use it to launch humans into space, it has to have a higher safety rating. And the area, the uh, Atlas V is not yet rated for people. That's what they need the money for. But the but the company that puts out the Atlas V didn't get money from NASA so in order to to get the Atlas V up up to specs yeah. so they need to find funding somewhere else the dream chaser companies at the Sierra Nevada they were going to use the Atlas V to get the dream chaser up into orbit and now the company that makes the Atlas V isn't getting the the money from NASA so it's still not clear how it's all going to come together and we'll just have to wait and see NASA recently announced that the Space Shuttle Endeavor, sadly, guys, is taking its final flight Friday, April 29th. Uh, we're also going to have uh, more spacewalks. We have four more spacewalks planned. And does anybody know who Mark Kelly is? Nope. No. Nope. Mm. I went to high school the, with him. He's the husband of Congresswoman Gabrielle Gifford, who's, who got shot. And he is oh. going. No. I'm seeing him in the news. Yeah, he's definitely going. And uh, supposedly she's supposed to attend the launch so that would be kind of cool i'm glad that you know she's healthy enough to actually do things like that spacex they've gotten a lot of publicity and you know we've all seen the test flights that they've been doing and hearing how successful they've been they have the most advanced plans so far and they've flown a rocket called the falcon 9 that steve mentioned and you know so far so good with them Boeing, which is in Houston, Texas, uh, has a capsule design called the CST-100, which could transport up to seven astronauts. It's an old-school capsule, right? I mean, it's, it looks like a capsule, and it would come down with the parachutes Parachute? and stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah it has oh. that old cone-shaped situation going with it. Yeah. A pile of feel to it. Apparently, yeah. just because it has that look doesn't mean that the technology is as antiquated. It's just that happens to be a good design, yeah. I guess. <laughs> I hope so. And finally, Blue Origin, as Steve said, which is owned by the guy that, that set up Amazon, they're keeping their stuff secret, which just yeah. makes me you know, curious beyond hell. But they're working also on a cone-shaped capsule, and I, I guess those aren't the plans of that and the look and feel of that haven't been revealed yet. No saucer-shaped technology yet, but uh, you know, those yet. aliens are a couple steps ahead of us. They've worked on it before. I think they were, the problem was they were very unstable. Yeah, they failed. And finally, guys, we have the distribution of the, the retired space uh, shuttles. Now, where are they going? Oh, yeah. And that list came out, and it's pretty interesting, and there's a little controversy mixed in here because some people are very unhappy with the fact that, they, you know, in Houston they didn't get one of the shuttles, and people are upset. Yeah, too bad. The Enterprise is coming to New York City. <laughs> I know, awesome. just 75 miles away. It's <laughs> pretty exciting. I'll be seeing it regularly. Here's the quick list. As Steve said, the Enterprise is going to end up in New York City at the Intrepid Sea Air and Space Museum. The first thing I have to say about that is I don't want them to leave the space shuttle outside. It should be inside. It should be in a climate-controlled building. You know, Aren't I want they to going to build a why it survives space. You think it's yeah. going to have a problem with some rain? Yeah, no bed oh. bugs in New York. I mean, yeah. <laughs> don't forget, yeah, are inside. Shuttle. Foam knocked the shit out of the space shuttle. It doesn't sound so tough to me. <laughs> <laughs> and and a and a blasted O ring. I mean, one little. Yeah, and I know what that feels like. That's horrible. 
<laughs> blew out your O-ring, right, James? But I'll tell you what, guys. We're all going down to New York City to see that, you know, maybe a few oh, months yeah. after after the mobs uh, subside. So Discovery is going to end up at the Smithsonian in uh, Chantyville, Virginia. Chantilly. Chantilly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. But that's you can't even pronounce your own names. I mean, that's... That's Abs. worse than Lester. <laughs> I don't know. In Shantytown, Virginia. Um, <laughs> Shackleford. I would really like to see Discovery for some reason. I think uh, that's the one that I was always... Why? I don't know. I like how, Discovery. How different are these things? There's a, one that's a test unit and the other... The Enterprise the was the deal. test unit. It never flew. Oh, we, uh, no, and Endeavor's going to the California Science Center in Los Angeles. And Atlanta is Atlantis is going to the Kennedy Space Center in Florida. That's a good distribution. And yeah, most of them are on the East Coast, though, Steve. I'm sure they could do a tour of them. You know, they could get together, reform the bands, go around the country, mm. go to all visit all four shuttles. <laughs> Don't you think they, they should keep one just in case they need it? They should turn it into a high-priced hotel. What do you mean, Jamie? The, 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 they're going to be dismantling the whole infrastructure to launch the things. Just having the shuttle is not the big deal. It's everything you need at the space center to launch it. Yeah, but what if we need incredible. to pull up an asteroid or something? I mean, we're just going to – Yeah, a little deep impact. Kind of You're going to give some cash to the Russians. That's what's going to happen. That's right. Yeah. They'll say, da, thank you very much, and they'll be gone. <laughs> <Duck>. <laughs> They'll be gone all the way back to Russia. They'll be heading to the moon or something in their first secret moon base. <laughs> Stupid oh America. Oh, my gosh. The, uh, our manned flight into space is arguably one of the most inspiring and balls-driven human endeavors of all time, right? Like, as of today, I can't think of anything that takes more nerve and, and there's more risk involved. And it, it saddens me a little bit. You know, I'm sad to think that we're not having, you know, like a, a, I like it that it's kind of secret and there's things about it that are, that are unknown and mysterious. Yeah. The, the mysticism makes it cooler to me. It makes it more special. Oh, and when, oh. when it becomes mystery, an everyday mystery. thing, mystique, not mysticism. I'm sorry. The mystique. You're right. But you get what I'm saying? Like now it's, you know, in five to 10 years, we're going to see it just become commercialized and then it's going to fall off the radar as the epic cool thing that it is, in my opinion. Well, hopefully it won't fall off the radar because then you really are in trouble. Yeah, <laughs> I don't. I don't know. I think. I mean, the next five years are going to be the hardest when we don't have we don't have our own space program. Essentially, yep. I, I'll be happy when it gets reconstituted, even as Man. with this ma- huge commercial component to it. That's fine. I don't think that's not going to take away anything from me. I don't think. Boo hoo hoo! We've got a guy who puts up satellites and. You know, he carts them around in a shopping trolley. I mean, <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, it must be awful not having a space program anyway. Well, grown up with it, sharp. <laughs> <laughs> but you have to understand, having a kick-ass space program is part of the American national identity. And it's it's one thing if you've never had it. You don't know what you're missing. But for right. uh, you know, I, we've had a space program my entire life. This will be the first time since I was born that we that the United States hasn't had a space program. Yep, yep. we will have loved and lost. Yep. It's sad. It comes. If you love yeah. it, you've got to let it go. <laughs> a manned Thanks, space Man, program. A manned, yes, of course. A man, I was going to say that. A manned space program. All right, I'll tell you what, Izzy. We'll let go of the space co- program if you let go of Hugh Grant. <laughs> you grant really? You really want? That's oh, not asking her. No. Much. no, if it's Alan Rickman, no way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he's- Rickman for me is the ultimate. I mean, forget any space program. <laughs> I'd rather have. Yeah, oh, oh. I watch Harry Potter for all the wrong reasons. 
<laughs> you root for Voldemort, don't you? I kind of do. There is actually a group on Facebook called I Join the Dark Side to Fuck Severus Snape, which I imagine you'd have to beep. <laughs> yep. You think that would, yep. if it wasn't Alan Rickman, would that website? That I doubt exist? it. I mean, yeah. the man, it, seriously, everything he says, it just sounds like breaking chocolate's got that. It just makes you moist, you know. It's just, <laughs> we'll probably have to have to yeah, bleep I, that too. Yeah, probably. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cho- yeah. Can't use the word chocolate. No. Sure. Rebecca, there's been a bit of an update with the whole power balance. Yes, there has been. Um, they still don't work. Yes. So still don't go. work. They're still full Thank of you total for that update. Good night, everybody. Crap. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> also, also, there's been yet another lawsuit against power balance. Of course, we won a big victory in Australia, uh, thanks to the skeptics over there who worked hard to get a brutal slapdown on power balance, forcing them to change their, their marketing strategy and, uh, to recant all of their pseudoscience. For those who are just joining us, power balance are rubbery silicone bands that go around your wrist and they have a magical hologram in them and the holograms are meant to be imbued with some sort of magical power which allows you to have greater power and balance. Rebecca, they align your frequencies to the natural frequencies of the earth and the universe in some way. That's correct, Steve. I apologize for not being clear on exactly what type of (laughs) bullshit this was. Um... Yeah, you don't, you don't want to be walking around with your frequencies out of balance, now, do you? Right. No, it's just it's just embarrassing. Yeah, it's like toilet paper coming out the back of your pants. So yeah, <laughs> uh, that was a, a big win in Australia, and, and I know that everybody in the U.S., all the skeptics here, were certainly hoping that power balance would get a similar wake up call, and they have a uh, California class action lawsuit was just settled. And they expect to settle many more. And this suit uh, is basically forcing them to take all of the magical wording off of their website, which is very good. Of course, it's not completely gone. It'll never be completely gone because yeah. they are still in existence as a company. And until we completely bankrupt them through lawsuits like this, I think they're just going to keep on trucking. So what they've done is they've taken down all of the talk of uh, the spiritual energy, chakra, whatever crap. And now they have released a statement basically saying that – basically brushing off the whole thing. Yeah. Um, saying that uh, they're, they're happy that all of that is behind them now. And they're going to com- further develop their, and I quote, performance technology trademark – uh, which Steve mentions on his uh, blog on the subject on Neurologica is basically imp- making an implied claim in the proper name of the product. Yeah. Um, it, by trademarking it, they don't actually have to admit, they don't ha- have to p- prove that they have any actual kind of technology. It's just called performance technology, and that's it's good a, enough. It's a- proper name it's like yeah. my, my product is called never fail that's the name of the product <laughs> not, not making any claims that's just what i call it never fail yep. I'll, buy, I'll buy two it's just, just a case. coincidence yeah <laughs> yeah and there's only so far you can take that i imagine you couldn't you couldn't name it like cancer buster or something <laughs> well you know <laughs> but, but supplements do do that they do name their supplements 
things like immunity boost or you know or yeah. think right you know whatever they they do give them implied right. well they're on the edge names. like I, yeah. you know i am pretty sure that there is a line somewhere where they would get busted for that but yeah you'd this... like to think so but yeah maybe not. Yeah, right. maybe not i'm so jealous that i haven't actually physically touched one of these things. i kind of want one in an awful way well you well, gotta you get, get a... the placebo band yeah get a yeah placebo. that's yeah definitely i'm gonna go online and do that and I don't know the website to give people, but if you Google placebo band, you can find it. And they only cost like $2 compared to the anywhere from 20 to $100 that power balance will run you. There is, there's actually though a band called placebo in the UK. So that's, yeah, that's true. That's true. So don't, yeah, don't end Try up just and... getting an album and being like, yeah. what is this? Well, that's <laughs> How do I wear that? It is good. Yeah. You, you're probably just as well off with that. But, uh, yeah, so there now Power Balance is moving forward with a Western brand of quote unquote performance technology. Yes. They are dropping the Eastern mysticism and replacing it with Western pseudoscience. So <laughs> we can. <laughs> I thought, I thought you were going to say that they, uh, they got into like a cowboy hat type yeah. of, uh, <laughs> right, spurs. In many ways, they are cowboys. Hmm? Hmm. Do you not have that as a as a saying? No, no. no we get cow- called cowboys. Oh no! You see, um, if if you if if your builder comes around your house and rips you off, he's a cowboy. Right. That's colloquial. Oh, I mean, oh no, 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 no. People, I've found that people from Europe call us people in the United States cowboys when they, they want to like throw a little dig at us. You know, a cowboy diplomacy. Yeah. They just apologize before introducing you. Shoot. <laughs> All right, but getting back to this to this news item. Yeah, anyway, Jesus, Jay. <laughs> I, I predicted in my blog that we'd be seeing the copper magnetic quantum bracelets. Yeah, I think when? quantum is a good guess. Yeah, quantum. And, but essentially, it's the Q-ray, right? So yes. now the, that's the, the Western version of, of the BS power balance is the Q-ray, which also suffered the same kind of lawsuits, you know. And regulatory action. But only after millions were built. Yeah, only after they made millions. Is the Q-Ray still out? Is nope. that still being sold? No, it's no I think done. they shut that down. Hmm. Uh, well, that. well, I think Steve also has a point in in his in his blog entry. He mentions that this, this company is basically going to continue to profit off of the lies they've already told and yeah, that are now so ingrained in everyone's mind that they don't even need to make the, the claim anymore yeah. uh, on their they, website. They just need to have the athletes there who are still endorsing the product. But right. I love this, this uh, statement they put out is a, a, is a masterpiece of like legalistic deception and like this, the so-called not-pology. This is sort of a, a yeah. absence of the admission of any guilt. They write, as with many early technologies, especially one involving Eastern origins, we recognize Ooh. the potential for confusion in the marketplace, confusion? especially when we go out of our way to generate that confusion. Right. And, and, and can name one early technology <laughs> involving Eastern origins. Firecrackers? In, in, <laughs> chopsticks? 
<laughs> we recognized yeah, I the potential. Chopsticks first came out. Yeah. It's like, hell no, there's no way that works. No but way. It turns out it was true. Hang on, they go on. We recognize the potential for confusion in the marketplace and concede we got ahead of ourselves with claims for our first product while we have yet to fully document its benefits. Uh, we are wholly committed to the continued develop. Yeah. So the only problem yeah. was that they marketed it before they documented all the benefits. Yeah. Forget the fact that they, they, they don't have any benefits. And so yeah, yeah, well, you know what this means is that next time they're going to put more effort into doing those phony studies yeah. where they pay off. You know, yeah. So yeah, our bad. We forgot to do the phony study first before right. making the crappy <laughs> guys. Guys, how much would you love – to have been in that meeting where they concocted that, that would have been epic. Just be there and listen to them. Just to be a fly on the wall. Masterpiece of legalese. Oh my god! It's not like they're saying, "Man, you know, I really believe in this." And, and what can we say to convince the public that we really mean, you know? And and they're all like, "Yeah, what can we do?" It's basically the exact opposite. They're like, "What can we say to fool these idiots for another couple of years, and then we'll cut and run." Yeah. Oh, and then we're going to sh- slide over to the Western bullshit, you know, the, the quantum <laughs> Yeah, they'll keep this going as Eastern, long as they can. Western, Northern. <laughs> yeah, that, that's what I was thinking. Yeah. They're selling cut- magic amulets and making millions. How cynical must these people be? And, and deservedly, in a way, if you were sitting on top of – you were making hundreds of millions of dollars from selling com- magic beans, you know – of course you're going to think that people are marks and they're stupid and you're just going to come up with the next con. What else, what else are you going to do? Uh, a fun project would be to interview people around the world and find out like what point on the map would they think has like a, a, a magical source. Like, you know, like I said, in the United States, it's Asia. Well, I think a lot of other countries import pseudoscience from the U.S. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Amounts of stuff we get off of you guys. Creationism. They Anything in Hollywood, any diet emanating from Hollywood or from the people in Hollywood or the lack of eating food is all American, yeah. as far as I can tell. And, of course, we got we got homeopathy from Germany and we got anti-vaccine from England. So, thank you. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah that's honest. the British, killing your babies. It's there we the go. Globalization <laughs> of pseudoscience. There we go. Yeah. And for uh, the record, guys, Q-Ray, alive and well. Yeah, yeah, I was just is. about to point that out. If you go to Steve's blog at Neurologica on the the topic of power balance and you look in the right hand column <laughs> of the Google ads, you if you are anything like me, will see a ton of links for let's see, balance band, magnetic bracelets, oh Q ray bracelet. Save twenty dollars at QRay dot com. Wow. So yep. And cop copper bracelets. Rebecca, you know what I love about power balance? The guy that started Power Balance was on the Q-Ray site, and he's like, that thing's actually made of metal. <laughs> They're wasting millions. <laughs> yeah, like, what? What is the cheapest material that's coming out of China right now? Let's think of <laughs> What if I just sold people rubber bands? Well, let's see. Silly bands is already taken. Yeah, silly yeah, bands are done. done paper. Done. We could do paper. Hell, we could do invisible. Ours are, ours are totally <laughs> downloadable <laughs> off the internet. On. We, we could do those. Put your things. hand on your computer screen. Click this button. <laughs> yeah, but we've, no, we've now balanced something. your frequencies. You're all set to go. You need okay. something though that people will wear outside and people will see and ask them about. So I like the paper idea. We'll just get those, um, you know, those concert bands you get. Those are like nothing. You about know? paper ones, yeah, yeah. Or the ones with the tape that sticks to your hair. Yeah, you, go to you rip can it never off get those things like, off. 
bastard. Oh, God, it's perfect because we'll say also like, you, you need a benefit that's very subjective. Oh, it's ancient paper technology. I mean, wait, Rebecca, what if we had yeah, a, origami? There you go. Right. Yes. The power of origami. I could write a very simple piece of software, software that prints these for you. You just print down what you wanted to do for you that day. <sighs> That's brilliant. Yes. Okay, so, thank you. Yes. Make them pay for the ink and paper. If we go the route of the invisible ones where you wave your hands over the computer, you, the way you show it off is we'll send you a T-shirt that says, I'm wearing the new invisible band, blah, blah. Go to this website. And that mm-hmm. T-shirt cost $150. <laughs> <laughs> All right, one more news item. Evan, tell us about the Nails of Christ. The Nails of Christ, the ones that actually nailed Christ to the cross. <laughs> All right, so do you know allegedly. How, how, allegedly. How do you know that Easter is around the corner? Let me pose that question to the Chocolate group. bunnies. That's one way. What's another way? The way you know is you check the news and you look for stories about the face of Jesus and Mary appearing anywhere and other things such as the... The nails that nailed Jesus to the cross have been discovered. That's how you know Easter's coming. Isn't yeah. that amazing? It, it's, it's so I, I just I just look at a calendar. <laughs> well, yeah, sure, Bob, if you want to do it the analog way. The documentary film, which was purchased by the folks at the History Channel, entitled Nails of the Cross, being produced by veteran investigator Simka Jacobovici, and you may know him as the Naked Archaeologist. I've actually never watched that show. You may remember him from other pseudosciences like the <laughs> tomb of Jesus. That's right. <laughs> Our pseudoscientific friend, the naked archaeologist, like you said, Steve, who has uh, brought us things like the tomb of Jesus in the past, in which there's no real evidence saying that it was the tomb of Jesus, but that didn't stop him from telling us that it was quite possibly, most likely, <laughs> sort of, yeah, sort of, maybe the right time period, the tomb of Jesus, and got James Cameron to come on board and help him make a documentary about that. Right. Um, if you'll remember, we talked about that on the show. Now, this time, he claims that he has found, or what could be, could likely be, because of corroborating evidence and anecdotes, nails that... Uh, did Jesus in on the cross? Well, you know, ridiculously circumstantial evidence. I wouldn't say corroborating. <laughs> I, I agree with that, yes. The whole thing is um, A of fancy, yeah. It really is. It's non-scientific. I mean, could a scientist please step up and uh, set this guy straight at some point? He found these nails in the ossuaries in the tomb with high priest Caiaphas, who is... Supposedly the priest that sent Jesus off to the Romans to get crucified. Now, there's no DNA or anything on these nails that corroborates that these were even crucifixion nails of any kind, frankly. Um, When the Israeli Antiquities Authority, who oversees uh, excavations happening around around Jerusalem from biblical times and so forth, uh, they said that it's never been proven beyond doubt that the tomb was the actual burial place of, Sophia, of, of Caiaphas. And they also said that nails are commonly found in these tombs. I'll quote them. Nails were commonly found in burial tombs of that period. The most accepted view is that they were used to carve the name of the deceased on the ossuary. The claim that these nails had any other significance is baseless and a figment of the imagination. But Evan, you, have, you said you had audio from uh, this guy, from Jacobovici. Explaining his logic about how he came to this conclusion. Yeah, let's give him a listen. So these are probably, possibly, the 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 nails from that Caiaphas tomb. 
So if you accept that this is the tomb of Caiaphas, and if you accept that these nails came from that tomb, given that Caiaphas is only associated with the crucifixion of Jesus, they very well could be those nails. There's a lot of coulds again. and mites. Yeah. And See, I ask maybes. again, where is the science in this? I mean, what, how, is it, how can this guy, frankly, get away with this? And so that- he, he's assuming this is the tomb of Caiaphas. He's assuming those are crucifixion nails. And then the, the big leap is that because Caiaphas was only associated with Jesus, what does that mean in life? That's all he ever did in it's life. That's all he ever did in his life. Killed I mean, Jesus. That's what he was most. <laughs> That's all he ever wanted. <laughs> if he he rubbish to follow he, on Twitter. Yeah, yeah, he was voted most likely to kill Jesus in high school. <laughs> I think. I think I'm going to have to start tweeting as Caiaphas and see what happens. <laughs> you know, they did check it. They did check his Facebook ac- account, and he poked Jesus quite a bit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, yeah, this is the most rank form of speculation imaginable, but he got his press time out of it. Well, yeah, I mean, his audience has a very low threshold for what they consider evidence. <laughs> so. Apparently. All right, Evan, let's go on to Who's That Noisy? All right. We're going back two weeks now because we skipped over the live show last week. Here is the noise that we played for the audience uh, two weeks ago now. I like that zipper kind of sound at the end. It's flubber. (laughs) (laughs) Uh Very good. It's dubstep flubber. Wait, wait, the original or the remake? Geiger counter or something. Yeah, it does sound like a Geiger counter. Or it sounds like somebody trying to break the world speed record for tapping a microphone. And doing it with his fingers. (laughs) And then Gus goes superhuman. So we we actually found a superhuman. Was it Jesus? Yes, yes. Someone dropping the nails of Jesus several times on the floor. Mm-hmm. What do you think those sound like? Bob, what do you think, uh, say, for example, gravitational waves emitted from black holes might sound like in theory? Uh, I have no idea. We haven't detected them yet, so I don't know what they're, what they're going to sound like. I'm we looking forward to it, though. But there are scientists who are simulating what that uh, gravitational wave would sound like. So that's what's going to... Oh, cool. Yeah, so this is very cool. So... Bob, as we were talking about not too long ago, you were talk- uh, we were talking about them trying to find and verify uh, the gravitational waves, the actual sounds, and to pick them up, and scientists are working on it. But this is a simulation of what that would probably sound like. Cool. Good idea. It was a good idea. And this was sent in by a listener, our list- uh, listener, Bruce Barr from Tampa. And we had a correct guess. We had several correct guesses. Really? The first, yeah, the first one, first one to guess correctly, G Singh, S-I-N-G-H, on the message boards, and actually found the actual clip, which you can also go to at Jan11, dot com, and hear it for yourself and read up about the work that they're doing there. Cool. Well, what do you got for this week, Evan? All right, folks. Here we go. This week's Who's That Noisy? The Zeppelin 2, the search for which has boggled the great mind.
What the hell? Hmm. So there you go. That's this week's Who's That Noisy? Post your message on our forums or send us an email at info at skepticsguide.org. Good luck, everyone. All right. Thanks, Evan. It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fictitious. And I challenge my panel of expert skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. Is everyone ready for this week? Please. Yep. Yes. Yep. Is okay. Good. Here we go. <laughs> is he is whimpering. Item number one. A recent study suggests that all people have one of three types of gut flora ecosystems, which does not follow racial or geographical lines. Item number two, scientists have developed a fabric-like material that can automatically repair itself if it is scratched or even cut. And item number three, computer simulations find that temperatures and pressures in the Earth's mantle are sufficient for the abiogenesis of long-chain hydrocarbons, the formation of oil from methane rather than decomposing organic matter. Izzy, as our guest, you get the privilege of going first. <laughs> okay. So a recent study suggests that all people have one of three types of gut flora ecosystem, which doesn't follow racial or geographical lines, but it could follow – no, it couldn't follow – so it's just basically what you might have been eating, your mum might have been eating, uh, or – yeah, no, that – but then geography and foods. I mean, how how mixed up is the world's, like, food systems and stuff if you're getting stuff from food? I don't know. I don't know anything about bugs. Uh in your tummy. Right. Scientists have developed a fabric-like material that can automatically repair itself if it is scratched or even cut. That would be cool. I'd, I'd like that because I rip a lot of shirts. Um, not in a sexy way either, just because I'm clumsy. Um, so I'd like that one to be true, but I don't see how that could work unless it has like something like a liquid underneath it. And then that would like absorb into it and then remesh itself and a bit like, you know, like your skin does with clotting. But wouldn't they prefer to use that for clotting? I don't know. Okay, three. Computer simulations find that temperatures and pressures in the Earth's mantle are sufficient for a biogenesis of long-chain hydrocarbons. Yes, because that's that must be how it happens. Um, so that's that means that you can have oil from like non-organic stuff, which would mean we'd be able to run cars forever and we wouldn't have to panic. We'd just slowly suffocate under the CO2. Um, okay. Um, I like number, uh, what's my favorite number? Uh, I don't know. I, I'd say, I'd say I kind of believe item one, uh, because it doesn't make any sense at all. So I kind of like that. That must be true. Uh, cause I'm an idiot. Uh, item three. Yeah, sure. A biogenesis. That sounds like something that God would do. So we'll go for that one. And the only one that I think is vaguely plausible is the fabric like material. That, that sounds too good to be true. So I'm saying that's the fiction. And I'm an idiot. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Bob. Uh, oh boy. Okay, that was very interesting. <laughs> Let's see. The, That's the uh, highest praise that Bob can <laughs> offer. That was that was yeah yeah mm, interesting. Are <laughs> <laughs> right, the three types of gut flora ecosystems now not following racial or geographic lines? Doesn't seem to follow. Um, it doesn't seem to make too much sense to me. 
But it just seems like there'd be many more different types of uh, gut floor ecosystems out there. And that, of course, that it depends on where you are. I mean, families share this stuff and based on that thought that, you know, the food that you eat. But I'm, I suspect here, though, that there's three, these three uh, ecosystems are, have major differences that, which is why they're classified. But within each ecosystem, there could be, there could be variations that maybe are depending on, on, uh, geographical lines. Um, so I can kind of, kind of rationalize that one in my head. The third one, the simulations, uh, that abiogenesis, uh, yeah, hydrocarbons, that's pretty incredible. Um, hmm. Yeah. I don't know about that one. Uh, that would be pretty awesome. But if it's, um, if it's in the mantle, how are we going to get at it? Um, I mean, I guess it could potentially work its way up here, but, uh, maybe it's, maybe it's possible it can be created, but it would just, it's irrelevant because we can't really ever get to it anyway, possibly. The second one about the material. Yeah. I have a problem with that one because, I mean, I've heard of materials repairing themselves, but these were like bulk materials that were, th- that were thick and maybe structural type materials where you can embed these like little spheres of liquids that can actually repair cracks and stuff. But doing it with clothing, I mean, not impossible, but, um, I think it'd be much more difficult to, uh, to have self-repairing fabric. Um, and I'm just going to go with that one as the fiction. Yeah! Woohoo! <laughs> oh yeah! G, GWI! <laughs> okay, Rebecca? Yeah, okay. So, Bob, covered that all pretty well I think. I'm trying to think of the the gut flora thing not following racial or geographical lines. I find it really interesting. I'm trying to figure out how exactly that could be explained and, and because it's my understanding that the foods we eat still are heavily determined by uh, geography even in our current sort of system of flying food all over the world. Um, but maybe, maybe that's the deal. Maybe we're changing up the way we eat and also from, uh, generation to generation. So maybe, yeah, it's just highly dependent upon your own specific diet. I don't know. That's weird. As for the abiogenesis of oil, yeah, that, I, I suppose that that makes sense. Computers, it's just a simulation. So it's not like this would require any extensive testing and stuff. Yeah, it's not like it's actually been proved and found. So I can believe that. Um, and so yeah, that, that leaves me with the fabric that can repair itself. And I, I agree with Izzy. I really want that one to be true, but it just doesn't seem truthy enough. Doesn't so, have enough truthiness. Yeah. I'm going to have to go with Izzy as well. GWI. Okay. Jay. I'm going to admit I looked up the word abiogenesis. A biogenesis. A biogenesis. <laughs> Abby, someone. And it, it, and I have to admit, it makes it more confusing to me. <laughs> A not bio life genesis creation. Creation is not created from life. Gotcha. Thank you, Steve. So that third item is saying that they found a way to to create oil from methane and not decomposing organic matter. That's exactly right. That's cool, and I, the first thing I, I think of when I hear stuff like this is, can we take advantage of that discovery and manufacture oil from from other stuff? I don't know if that's even efficient, but that would be that would be cool. The one about the scientist developing the fabric-like material that can repair itself. This is one of those man, I'd love it if that were true. 
Um, but I don't know what the applications are. The fabric-like material could be really small and it could have stuff embedded in it that, that could repair it. Like Bob was saying, like how we have some plastics that can do that. And then the one about the, the, the uh, gut bacteria. I would have originally thought that there were thousands of different kinds, you know, and to narrow it down to three seems unlikely, but I have to also admit that I know nothing about you know, it would be ridiculous for me to say, no, there is way more than three, you know, like I have... Well, it's three types of ecosystems, Jay, not just three types of bacteria. Well, I mean, Steve, what do you mean by three types of flora ecosystems? Everyone they looked at had either type A, type B, or type C. But when you... Please define ecosystem in this regard. It's the totality of the gut flora, you know, living in, in your intestines, in your GI system. So it's the, it's the interaction between all of the living bugs down there that are, that's the ecosystem, that the, yeah. the give and take and the interplay between them, right? Yeah. I still don't know anything about that. Um, <laughs> and I'm not going to go with GWB, which is number two, correct, Bob? Or GWI this week. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah. Okay. I just noticed that it's flora ecosystems rather than fauna as well, which is freaky. I am going to go with the, uh, with the, uh, Abiogenesis as right. the fake. <laughs> okay, Evan. Well, I took a different tact than everyone else in coming up with the... Flip, flip the coin? Cheated? No, my three-sided coin, I lost it. It rolled under the heater or something. Uh, the first item, a recent study suggests. The third item, computer simulations find. Yeah, we've got some wiggle room here with those. I think those ten maybe perhaps to be... More along the more likely to be true, whereas item two, scientists have developed concrete, hard, firm, a fact. Yeah, say it, say it, man. So that, and therefore, based on that alone, that analysis alone, the fabric material that one is fiction. Yeah, you're just saying that it's because you agree with me. That's that's why I think. <laughs> I'm just, I'm yes, just getting a massive what... ego now. I'm so happy. All right, so, I thought I'd be left out. Freaking yeah, ego so freaking huge. Jay, oh, yeah. Jay, two weeks in a row now, you're all by yourself. Last week it worked out well. You were the sole winner last week at the live show. Yeah, but, I will also add at our 300th episode. Yes. 300. I thought we agreed to never speak of that win again. Didn't we have those tapes destroyed? But everyone agrees with number one, so let's start there. A recent study suggests that all people have one of three types of gut flora ecosystems, which does not follow racial or geographical lines. You all think that this one is science, and this one is <gasps> science. Yes. Yeah. Cool. And yeah, it's it. called the enterotype. What enterotype are you? Type A, a. type B, or type C? A. Uh, Did you actually, know this, Steve? What, what what distinguishes them? No, Steve? it's a new item. It's a new news item. I did. I, did, I knew it when I read it. <laughs> <laughs> Jackass. <laughs> did I know it? Yes, I'm psychic. Uh, so there are. <laughs> but you're a doctor. You, he could read his own mind. <laughs> the researchers looked at you know hundreds of samples from individuals. What they do that you can't really culture all the bacteria because a lot of them need the environment of the intestines to really thrive, so you can't culture them. But what you can do is just look at all the DNA, just you know, chew up all the DNA and see you know, how much of 
different identified bacterial genes are in there. And from that, you can infer what, what the, the gut biota is. And what they found, surprisingly, was that everyone they looked at falled into one of three basic, very dominant patterns. Bob? Uh, Bob? That were... And, and they, they identified them by the dominant bacteria in each of the each of the three types. Doesn't rule out that there aren't you know as you, as you said, Bob. There obviously could be variations and differences, but they they were these three clear dominant types that people fell into, and it was not determinable. Didn't really match nation or continent or or race. They didn't mention family. I still would think that people would generally uh, share the gut biota Absolutely. with their family members. Yeah, that's still. Is I think probably the answer. So they don't know why it's it, it seems to be randomly distributed, you know, across the world. Um, wh- mm-hmm. One of the theories is that you know these are stable ecosystems, and you're either, you're just going to fall into one of these stable ecosystems. Um, no, matter, uh, you know, no matter where you live, I mean, you're going to get exposed to these bacteria and just from just quirky, chaotic chance. One of one of these patterns, basic patterns, is going to emerge as dominant, and it's there's you know there's certain stability to these to these three different ecosystems of, of the gut bacteria. Does that does that mean that um, we can't? Because one one of the things that, that I've been interested in is potentially in the future is really tweaking the hell yeah. out of these ecosystems to to do things like help with diseases and and potentially even. Do things that we can't even conceive now, especially with artificial bacteria. Yeah, well, yeah so, you wonder what the implication is for doing things like seeding genetically engineered bacteria into to the gut ecosystem. Um, it also, you know, I think fits with the evidence that shows that, like taking uh, routinely taking lactobacillus or other, you know, bacteria, probiotics, etc., don't really do much because they don't influence your ecosystem. It's already there. It's established. It's stable. You can't break in new species. You don't need to keep eating more bacteria in order for it to maintain itself. Um, and in fact, the evidence shows there's really no benefit to routine use of, of probiotics. So this this supports that. Does this mean we won't have the um, banana smelling farts anymore? Because I remember. Yeah, did that's, that come up on the show. Yeah, that's what, yeah. that's what Bob and I were talking about. Are we going to be able to have your farts smell like bananas? So <laughs> it may be harder to get that uh, bacteria to take up shop and to, and to incorporate itself into the ecosystem. It won't be as easy as just seeding it into your into your biota. But but you know, the, but this is a next step to, towards understanding the, yeah. the, the gut biota, and maybe this will help us, you know, get the information we need to, to then ma- start making adjustments to it. And also, the next step is looking at what uh, conditions and diseases and disorders these different these three different uh, enterotypes are associated with. Um, you know, some may carry a higher risk of of, of cancer, of obesity, of uh, irritable, heart, yeah, irritable heart bowel disease. syndrome, yeah. So that'll be interesting. Mental disorders. Yeah. <laughs> this may become like your blood type. You'll you'll have Ooh. your enterotype that you'll have to record. Oh, good. Then the Japanese will turn that into a pseudoscience. Yeah, yeah we'll right. count on it. Somebody will. Let's go on to item number two. Scientists have developed a fabric-like material that can automatically repair itself if it is scratched or even cut. Jay thinks this one is science. Everyone else thinks one, that this one is the fiction, and this one is. The fiction. Yeah! Oh, yeah Hooray, baby. This is like Jeff, the first baby. time, first time ever <laughs> oh, I've got this right. Yeah. 
and especially it had to be the one we were recording you on. Yeah. yeah. Oh, no, well, I get it right all the time. I was just being modest. Uh, uh, right. I hope you're happy, <laughs> Izzy. <laughs> now, this is, this is based on a real news item in which scientists have developed a, a material that can be easily repaired, but it doesn't repair itself. But the user can repair it easily. You have to shine light of a specific frequency on it, and then that will cause it to melt, filling in any cracks or anything or rips or tears. And then when it, it will recool with a smooth surface. Oh, that's cool. That, interesting. that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. A lot of sense. So you think just you just have to go outside on a sunny day. Uh, yeah, you have to shine ultra shine <laughs> ultraviolet light on it. At, I guess at a certain frequency temperature, and then that will you know intensity, and that will melt it. All of this means that computer simulations find that temperatures and pressures in Earth's mantle are sufficient for the abiogenesis of long chain hydrocarbons. The formation of oil from methane rather than decomposing organic matter is science. Good science. Yeah, this is interesting. Cool. This has been cool. a little bit of a, I don't know if I would even call it a controversy, but there's always been this minority opinion that maybe hydrocarbons on the earth come in part or in, or to a large part from abiogenesis rather than, as we were all taught in school, you know, the dinosaurs get crushed underneath the, the rocks and then over time the pressure and temperature turns all of that organic matter, plants and animals, whatnot, into crude oil and, and natural gas. Uh, but there, the question has been, can there be abiogenesis of long-chain hydrocarbons? And the, and the consensus has largely been that not significantly, if at all. But this com- com- recent computer simulation found that, yeah, you can actually get to pressures and temperatures in the Earth's mantle that can form methane, which is a, a single carbon with four hydrogen atoms, into long-chain hydrocarbons. And and they, they brought up the point, Bob, of... Um, yes, if, it, if that's happening, it'd be it'd be inaccessible at least for the foreseeable future, unless it's but, percolating up closer to the surface right, somehow. Yeah. Right. Sorry, Jay, you didn't uh, capture lightning in a bottle twice—at least not twice in a row. <laughs> Who captures uh, lightning in a bottle once? What does that even mean? It's a metaphor for a, a rare, kind of lucky event. Like Jay oh, being, I see. Being uh, a sole winner in science fiction. No one yeah. catches lightning in bombs. <laughs> All right, Jay, give us the quote this week. This was a quote sent in from Sazaz. <laughs> Jay, wait, wait a second. Pronounce this S Z A S Z. Says. Says you. Leicester. Says Leicester. All right, so whatever. Thanks for sending this quote in, Frank. And the quote is. Yeah. I think I think that it is much more likely that the reports of flying saucers are the results of known irrational characteristics of terrestrial intelligence rather than the unknown rational efforts of extraterrestrial intelligence. Richard Feynman. Richard Feynman, cool dude. Oh, yeah. Fine man. Fine man. <laughs> well, thanks, Jay. <laughs> Izzy, thanks for joining us as a guest rogue this week. You've been a, a lot of fun. Hey, thanks Izzy. very much. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Too. It's been an honor, and I won, and I'm 100% on science fiction. Yes, you were 100%. Ah. And thank you yeah, so yeah, much you. for doing the voiceovers for our, our podcast. It was worth every penny. Oh, my gosh. Oh, yeah, every penny. Oh. <laughs> <sighs> thanks, Izzy. All those so cheap. Time. I'm cheap and Izzy. There we go. All right, well, thanks for joining me this week, everyone. Thank you, Steve. Thanks, Steve. Good to be with Nothing you. Nothing else to do. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. 
For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. You can also check out our other podcasts, the SGU 5x5, as well as find links to our blogs and the SGU forums. For questions, suggestions and other feedback, please use the Contact Us form on the website or send an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by leaving us a review on iTunes, Zoom or your portal of choice.